0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance, I'm Alan Kohler. Well, it's a real bonanza this week, that's for sure. Victorian Senator Darren Hinch, former broadcast legend, runs me through what's been going on in Canberra this week and, of course, it's all about Barnaby Joyce. Professor John Hadjik from the University of Melbourne, who specialises in Italian studies, tells me what's going on in Italy right now, and it's a fair bit. Scott Haywood, aka thefinanceguru.com.au, and also market commentator for Macquarie Media, tells me the big issues affecting markets this week. And Felicity Emmett, Co-Head of Australian Economics at ANZ, runs me through the latest economic news. Oh, and last but not least, Tim Lawless, Head of Research at CoreLogic, gives me the latest on house prices for May, which came out today.
1: Members on my right will
2: cease interjecting. The leader of the house will cease interjecting.
0: I'm joined now by Senator Darren Hinch, my old mate from 30 years ago when I appeared on his radio program uh, on 3AW when I was a young journalist on the Financial Review, and um, I'm delighted to be talking to him as Senator Hinch to talk about this week in politics. So, Darren, it looks like um, Barnaby actually does have a medical certificate for his month off. Do you know what it says? <laughs> Uh, no I don't. I think I, I should say Hutzpah, I'll explain
3: that in a minute. But when the, the national when he announced they announced he was taking eleven weeks leave, that was the national party. The whip put that out that he's taking eleven weeks of personal leave. Then when some of us started to criticize that and question it and saying will he be paid? I mean, he's only been a politician if you be technical for the last five or six months since he won New England. Uh, before that he was making a fortune, as it turned out illegally, because he was a dual citizen. So then they changed it from his personal leave to four weeks of um, medical leave, and he's now saying it'll actually be 15 days, we we'll be back for the next sitting of Parliament and in the meantime, his um, constituents' work, his electoral work, will still go on. So I really don't know what, what what's happening. If, in fact, he is, is having mental problems, or emotional problems, and he needs medical time off then, then I'll back off him. And, uh, and and that's fair. But it was their own fault. they the ones who said he, he was taking 11 weeks of personal leave. Do you think and he's... Also, uh, I, think he, I, I think his girlfriend, his, his partner, sorry, his girlfriend, his partner, I think she's on maternity leave uh, from and be paid maternity leave at the same time anyway.
0: So do you think Tommy, he's washed up? Do you think he's washed up?
3: Yeah, yes, I do. I, I think he's preparing his exit. To be honest with you, he'll never be leader of that's again, and he'll never be deputy prime minister again. So, I think he's—I uh, think he's, his credibility's gone. And I mentioned Hutzpah because uh, the best definition of the word Hutzpah is uh, the Jewish kid. This was from God of my ear, actually, the former prime minister of Israel. Her definition of Hutzpah was the Jewish kid who murders both his parents, then pleads for mercy on the grounds he's an orphan.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is Barnaby. <laughs> I mean, go back to February, Alan, go back to February when he was um, uh, talking about privacy. I need my privacy. I need my privacy. I'm, uh, and, and then to have the gall, to have gall to take the telegraph to the press council for invading his privacy, when he then goes and sells not only a story, but as we've seen from the promos, um, television footage of the new baby. You know, if he took some 150 and gave some of it to the four daughters he's, who are going to go through hell when they watch this television show of their man's new love, now look, I, I'm not being hypocritical here myself because I've, I've been married umpteen times and people do fall in out of love and lives change and and people get hurt along the way. But the way he's done it has been just a
0: shocker. So on to more serious matters. I know that, I know that yep. uh, Senator Brian Burston uh, says he's going to now support the government's tax cuts. A couple of interesting things about that. Firstly, does that mean that the tax cuts get through? And also, what does this mean for Pauline Hansen's authority and um, the cohesiveness of One Nation?
3: Well, she has none. Um, I, 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 saw, I, I some, saw some of this coming because a couple of weeks ago I noticed in a, in a, I got a letter circulated by Corman, Senator Corman, about uh, some just some mundane things, and he sends it out to the party whips. Well, of which I'm one, you know, I'm party leader and the party whip. Um, and I saw that uh, Giorgio had become the party whip for One Nation, not person. So I knew something was going on inside the party. Uh, I think, got course, I'm hearing he's not going to get pre-selection for One Nation next time. So therefore, he's on his last legs. But um, on this one, actually, he has to sack him from the party, but you can't defy that. But but look, I think, on company tax, I think, in the end, uh, Hinch's hunch. I'm often wrong, I think, in the end, uh, Matthias Cormann We'll get the ex zenophon team, Centre what they call it, the so Centre Alliance. Eventually, he'll get those two. Uh, he's got Burston. I think eventually, after the Longman by election, he'll get Hanson back. She'll have another epiphany on the, on the road to Damascus, and he'll get her back. The two holdouts, which will never get, um, Stora and me. I mean, I I offered back in in um, in uh, March. I told uh, the finance minister, look. Labor wants $2 million for small business turnover. Uh, Jackie Lambie and I got up to $10 million last year. Then actually it was Pauline Hanson and I got up to $50 million and the government agreed. So I offered in March, let's go to $500 million. So That's another 6,000 businesses, small businesses, that you've got to help out here down the track. Um, I just will not give a tax cut to the robber banks when they're in front of a Royal Commission. I mean, I, I actually, to him, I, I used a quote, I think I used it in the Senate, an old Mick Young quote. About this is about Ian Sinclair, whose father owned a funeral parlour, and he's talking about stealing pennies from dead men's eyes. Do you remember that? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that's and that's what the banks have done—taking money from dead people's estates.
0: So, so go d- book, d- the can I'm you the do? You, the are you able to? Are you able to block it?
3: Uh, no. No, because a the story I think they only need eight out of the ten now, because they've now they've got um, well it happened to Steve Martin anyway, who's voting for it. Lionel's voting for it. I heard Lionel on, on Sky today saying that if the government goes for my plan of uh, five hundred million, he'll pull out. Um, so then there'll be one more one short. But I, I think I think in the end the government would hold out, I'll uh, get through Longman. Then they will get Hanson back on board, and I'll go. They'll go with a big push, and store and I'll be left out, stay out in the cold. Because I, I'm, I'm happy to go to the election, saying I didn't give the banks a tax cut, the big banks a tax cut, and I'm I'm happy to happy to stand on that. I think the, the prime. I said to Coleman, I said, look, the prime minister says he go to 500. The prime says prim- 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 he's so keen on this, he'll take it to the election. Well, lots of ruckus, they say, because I think it's a mad thing to take. I don't believe that 63 percent. If you look at it closely, it's only it's not, but not all saying, "Wow, isn't it great to have tax cuts for big, big business?" So it's not no, it's the, quite
0: that way. But the reason right. they need it, the, the reason they need it, Darren, is that um, is that it's their only economic policy. So without that, they don't yeah, have one. Right.
3: <laughs> Yeah. Well, look, I, I can see – I have some sympathy for it, personally, uh, when you've got Singapore coming down to 70% and Britain threatening 19% and some of these Euro- European countries and, 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 and Trump coming down to 20%, 20, 20 But the problem is, as we've found, and Nancy Pelosi threw this out in, in the U.S. Um, yeah, but, uh, recently, a lot of that money from the tax cuts of the U.S. has gone to share buybacks. And dividends it hasn't gone, and the wage increases. Now, some months ago, I, I was scoffed out by the lion homes of the world because I said, "Why don't companies who, who want to get down to twenty five percent, why don't they do some sort of like an don't know an EBA with the tax office, right? And say to them, if you give us the twenty five percent, if the government gives us twenty five percent, we'll put a contract with our workers saying we'll increase their salary by X, Y, or Z dollars over or percent over X, Y, or Z years. And if we don't honour it, then we lose our tax cut." And I was told that couldn't work. The other one couldn't work. Corman said, you can't cut them in half or differentiate. I said, well, you did it 50, at 50 mil. I mean, somebody who had a turnover of 52 million, they didn't get it. So there's, and with every tax rate, with every, if I'm, my tax rate is, is
0: X because I earn under Y. So you can do it. So um, just finally, Darren, uh, uh, who do you think is going to win the election whenever, whenever it happens?
3: Well, I firmly believe it'll be next year.
0: I cannot see Turnbull going early.
3: Uh, I wrote in my book, I wrote this about last October, when things were really bad for Turnbull. Um, I said, if I were Chloe and Bill, I wouldn't be measuring the curtains for the Lodge just yet. Uh, think it's got to be very close. I think that the uh, the pensioners issued a strong one for the government over, over franking. Uh, I, look, it's very, very close. The fact that, we, whether you like it or not, we do have a presidential style of election here, and with Malcolm Turnbull now leading Bill Shorten by 17 points as preferred PM, that does have an effect. Um, you know, I wasn't at all surprised that the, that the election was so close last time, because I, I travelled k's around country Victoria in, in the justice bus, and the Liberal voters who are going to, Split the ticket and vote for the Libs in the lighthouse and and us in the Upper House, or well, somebody else in the Upper House's insurance. They were petrified about the Libs stuffing around with the superannuation. It was it was palpable, whether it's true or not. You know, I know many scare you too, but the the superannuation the people were suspicious the government are driving to do something shonky with super. Well, I've got a quick tax thing. Uh, I, I know you meant to horse trade, you meant to do stuff like that, but I, I said on the sky the other night, I told the government, I said, I'm going to vote for your whole tax package, your personal tax package over seven years. Labor should vote for it too. They've already voted for it in the lower house. They should vote for it too. And then if they don't like it, do what they threaten to do with company taxes, overturn it if and when they get into office. Because, I mean, I, I, I think uh, the, the government's uh, personal tax cut uh, plan over seven years is not bad.
0: Joining me now is Professor John Hadjik, Professor of Italian Studies at University of Melbourne, to talk about what's going on in Italy at the moment. Yep. John, the first thing is I don't really understand how come the uh, Italian president gets to turn down um, the choice of finance minister. What's going on?
2: Uh, he's actually entitled under the constitution to uh, approve all nominations for, for ministers. And he's not the first. Uh, uh, by any means to have rejected the the, the nomination of an individual minister. This, is, this has in fact occurred in the past.
0: And and in the past, um, what what happens next usually?
2: Uh, what usually happens is that the the parties that have put forward a minister then go back and find somebody else to to put forward, and then generally that, that there's resolution of the issue.
0: Right, so um, uh, that seems like, uh, I mean, uh, a couple of days ago that looked like it wasn't going to happen and everyone was heading for a new election, but last night seems to have um, changed things a little bit and they seem now likely to put forward somebody else as they have in the past.
2: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, (laughs) this is Italian politics, so um, what happens one day may not be reflected a few hours later or, or the next day. And obviously there's been a lot of discussions behind the scenes We've got uh, two parties that that were were in opposition to each other before the election that have decided to come together. So there's been um, quite a lot of uh, um, discussions between them. They had different strategies uh, in response to the president's rejection of the nomination to the the finance minister. But they've obviously decided that uh, it might be better to try again. And they've been authorized by the president to try and form another government.
0: Those two parties, the Five Star Movement, and I think it's called the League. Um, yes. uh, when you say they've been in opposition to each other, have, uh, do they agree that they don't like uh, the European Union?
2: Uh, they, that's certainly one of the things that has brought them together. I mean, they, when I say they're in opposition, they, the Five Star uh, Movement, said it wouldn't be in coalition with, with anybody, and the the League Party was actually part of a another coalition. Uh, however, they uh, because because of the the unexpected outcomes of the elections, uh, it turned out that these two parties were the most likely to be able to form a government. And as a result, they've found common ground in, in a couple of issues. And one of those is the stance towards Europe and the Euro. And the other one is the um, viewpoints on, illegal migra- on on immigration.
0: But, but does it turn out that they can't form a government because the president won't let them?
2: Oh, no, no, it's not that the president won't let them form a government. He's simply uh, not accepted the nomination for uh, minister. Uh, you know, they, have, they, have the, they had the right to put forward another name, and they said they wouldn't. Uh, so for a, for a short time, it seemed that, they, that the president would nominate a technocrat to uh, establish a government. If that had happened, uh, that technocrat would have to uh, take his uh, his government to the Houses of Parliament, and there would be a vote of confidence, and obviously the expectation what well, the expectation would be that those two parties would reject it, leading uh, ultimately to to an election. But they've obviously had a little a uh, second think about this and decided it might be better to try and form a government and not go to another election because uh, one ever knows what the outcome is.
0: Did the president accept their then their nomination for prime minister?
2: Yes. Yes. So the only sticking point was the nomination for the finance minister. Uh, but the big problem, the issue there was that the, the finance minister, the person they had in mind, whose name is Paolo Savoia, has very, very firm ideas about um, the euro and what Italy should do with it. And he's firmly opposed to um, the, the euro and would like Italy to leave the euro zone. And it was for that reason, because it was starting to, to make the ner- the markets very anxious and nervous, uh, and there are a couple of other policies as well that these two parties would like to do uh, that make the markets very nervous, which is why um the the president said no, he said we need someone who's who's uh, able to um, stand by Italy's current commitments on the economic front.
0: Savona is also no spring chicken, he's eighty one.
2: Uh, that's, no, that's, <laughs> uh, that's not so surprising in the Italian context. Um, it's, it's not uncommon to have uh, people are, are, are of an older generation uh, running ministries or uh, running for, for parliament or whatever. Uh, Berlusconi is also 81, and he, he, he certainly um, uh, ran a strong campaign in the last election hoping to, to lead the
0: right. Yeah, well, at least he didn't win. But um, just on a broader issue, I mean, I don't know whether this is your expertise or not, but um, do you think that the EU has a democracy problem um, throughout the uh, throughout Europe? I mean, they've had Brexit now. The uh, people in Britain voted to get out. And um, I wonder whether the vote in Italy is fundamentally about the EU and against it.
2: Um- well, that's a complicated issue because, of course, the five-star movement is vain, uh, is very strongly anti-EU, as well as uh, the League Party. It, it, it does have to do with autonomy, etc. However, during the elections, they toned down their anti-Europe uh, rhetoric. They were, they were um, much more cautious about this. They didn't want to um, scare too many voters. And one of the things that we have to remember is that for a very, very long time, Italy and Italians were actually very strong supporters of the European Union. In fact, the Italians were amongst the most uh, content uh, over many years with the European Union. The, really, the big challenge has been the euro, because what it's done is it's locked the Italian economy into uh, the German economy. So before the introduction of the euro, what used to happen was that countries like Italy that... Um, that, that uh, wish to stay, remain competitive, what they did was they depreciated their their currency, and that was a sort of a standard strategy that that countries like Belgium and Italy adopted uh, and France as well and one of the problems now, of course, is they don't have that mechanism, and the only way to compete with Germany is to lower costs by some other way, such as restraining uh, uh, wage increases etc and so that 's really the challenge it's it's being locked in to the German economic model without, with uh, and not having a lot of flexibility around it.
0: Do you, do you think that the current uh, storm in Italy will blow over?
2: Uh, look, uh, I'm a, a little bit more optimistic in terms of uh, being able to form government instability because uh, Italy, Italy does have the knack of being able to run itself uh, d- despite any uh, political issues. It, has, it certainly has uh, had a, a very high number of prime ministers and governments since World War II. I think the issue in this particular case what, uh, is that the outcome of the election really uh, took everyone by surprise uh, and it wasn't expected at all. The idea was that the right-wing coalition would, would, would come out ahead and we'd be sort of fairly fairly secure in knowing what to expect. So the issue in this particular case is the unexpectedness of both of the outcome and the unexpectedness of what might occur in the next few months.
0: I'm joined now by Scott Hayward, who's with the financeguru.com.au and also is a market commentator for Macquarie Media to talk about what's going on in the markets, which is quite a bit at the moment. Well, Scott, we're seeing a bit of a return of volatility. The VIX index has popped up, um, seems to be mainly about I- Italy. Um, how are you seeing things this week?
4: Yes, look, shares in Europe this week have come under pressure and the catalyst has been the political complications in Italy. Uh, following an inconclusive election outcome, there is fresh election make, may be held and the concerns of this could then result in a push for Italy to leave the Eurozone. Now, we've seen a number of countries over the last you know five to ten years in this position. And as you said, it is a huge factor in increasing volatility. What's happened in shares is that defensives, such as gold stocks, have been the flight to safety. So we've seen them rally. Uh, But the other factor that's also taken place, Alan, this week, has been a significant drop in oil prices. Over the last 10 days, the commodities dropped by 10%. Actually, uh, last night was up marginally, but this is due to concerns that Russia and Saudi Arabia are considering easing production cuts. Which could be in place for more than a year, so we've seen oil stocks also um, under pressure. But unfortunately, Alan, it hasn't resulted in the Bowser. Petrol still very expensive.
0: So, um, wh- where do you think? I mean, where do you think the market sits at the moment? Are you um, are you a buyer or a seller? What do you reckon?
4: Well, look, we're at four week lows, and we have had a, a fairly good rally, having the oil uh, sitting around about the six thousand one hundred mark. We're still well off our ten year highs, but we are at you know, around two two to three-year highs if you take out the last month. Look, I think I'm a buyer. I'm still bullish that whilst interest rates remain low, which I think they fundamentally will, uh, that the share market still creates a genuine opportunity and genuine capacity to invest in. The only concern that I do have going forward, Alan, is this huge amount of money that is going to be spent on the Royal Commission and the pressure it could create to not only our market but to our bank stocks. Like we've seen this week, Z agree to sell its one-path life New Zealand business for New Zealand $700 million, they're going to make $50 million after the cost they think. But banks now in Australia, due to the Royal Commission, are really going to be, in the next six to 12 months, simplifying its operations. Now, what that could mean for shareholders or investors is that it could mean a cutting dividend, or it could mean increased interest rates at any level, personal loans, home loans, credit card or business loan. So that's the big thing to look out for. So I think to be wary really on the banks, but overall, I'm very
0: bullish long-term for our market. But given the banks are such a big proportion of our market, that that's uh, quite an influence on the market as a whole, isn't it? Well, it's a huge influence. And then if you're
4: thrown in Telstra, which is also under significant earnings pressure and also the risk of cutting dividends, just investing in the index may not be the right solution for every investor, which means you may need to not just be in such funds such as Vanguard, index funds, you may need to look for active managers or engage a financial planner or a stock broker to create an appropriate portfolio for you.
0: So what sectors What sectors do you like? Well, I,
4: I still like utilities. I think uh, companies like AGL and APA, I think they're going to continue to improve. I really like healthcare. I know Cochlear and CSL are at record highs at the moment. Cochlear sitting around just under $200, CSL not far behind. But I think even despite... Um, their increase, their high price, having such diversified earnings overseas really does create value for an Australian investor.
0: I'm joined now to talk about the week in economics by Felicity Emmett, Co-Head of Australian Economics at ANZ. Felicity, um, what was the main data economically this week that you saw
1: Well, I think the CapEx data is probably the most important, not just because it gives us a bit of a read on what um, happened in the first quarter, but because of the expectations for the coming year or so. So I think that's really the highlight for the week. On that front, it was a little bit disappointing, but still I think okay looking. So the number for the first quarter was a bit weaker than expectations, but the strength was concentrated in machinery and equipment investment while non-residential building was weak. And we knew that from construction work done data last week. So then it goes to the expectations. And they still suggest that non-mining business investment will expand next year, a little bit slower than earlier uh, expectations. So now firms are saying they're likely to increase investment by about percent compared to 8% last time. Um, but interestingly, it looks as though really most of the drag from the unwind of mining investment is now over. So that is a really positive sign going forward for overall business investment.
0: And there was some housing approvals data as well. Does that um, uh, sort of feed into the sense of what's going on with um, with capital investments?
1: Yeah, look, housing again, that was also a bit weaker than expected, um, down 5% for the month. Um, You know, that was driven by the volatile unit segment. It had risen quite strongly in the previous month and then reversed in April. Um, I think what we have probably seen the peak in housing approvals, and we're likely to see a gradual decline from here. No collapse is suggested at all at the moment by the data. But when we look at the housing finance data for the construction or purchase of new homes, that has trended lower over the last few months. So that does suggest that we will um, get a, a gradual decline in building approvals. There's still though quite a bit of work in the pipeline for houses and particularly for high rise units. So that will keep the level of construction relatively high in the first half of the year and it won't really be until the second half of 2018 and into 2019 that we start to see construction activity in the residential sector start to come off. But we do expect that will be relatively gradual at this stage.
0: So, so, So what does it all tell you about the economy overall?
1: Look, I think the outlook for this year is still okay. There's quite a bit of um, activity going on in the pipeline, housing, all non-residential building. There's quite a bit there going on for 2018. I think 2019, there's probably more of a question mark over. Um, In the building approvals release, we also got numbers for non-residential building approvals and they were quite weak for uh, the fourth month in a row. So that is a bit concerning. Um, so I think that 2019 is perhaps um, looking a little bit more questionable than we had previously thought. As well, when you look at it, the international dynamics have deteriorated a little bit. You know, the political front is more uncertain. The trade front is more uncertain. Um, The economic surprises have certainly turned negative after being very positive through 2017. So I think the 2019 outlook is perhaps um, got more of a question mark over it it than it did have sort of three or six months ago.
0: I'm joined now by Tim Lawless, the head of research at CoreLogic, to tell us what's going on with house prices in May. Well, Tim, what is the national house price change in May? Well, we've
5: seen another slip in dwelling values across May. National values were down by a percent so a fairly slim uh, uh, fall over the month. But once again, it's, it's a fairly similar trend to what we've been seeing really the last six months in the market where capital city values are down a little bit more Uh, particularly being driven by Melbourne now, uh, as well as Sydney. But across the regional markets, we're seeing a bit of support here. So uh, um, regional values are up by 0.2% over the month. Over the past 12 months, they're up uh, um, only 2.2%, so just a little bit better than inflation. So Melbourne values have fallen, have they? Yeah, uh, Melbourne's been a little bit more resilient to Sydney up until recently, and uh, Melbourne didn't peak out until late last year, whereas uh, Sydney peaked out in the middle of last year. But the last month, we've seen Melbourne dwelling values fall by half a percent. Uh, Sydney values were down by 0.2%. So that makes Melbourne now the uh, the weakest performing market the past uh, three months. So on a rolling quarterly basis, Melbourne's down by 1.2%, which uh, has been the, the, the largest fall of any capital city. In fact, Sydney was the only other city, capital city at least, to see values fall over that rolling three-month period. They were down by 09 of a percent.
0: Is there much of a, of a difference within those markets? For example, are uh, freestanding houses falling more than apartments, or the other way around and uh, and the top end of the market versus the small end? There's there's some really big differences, and uh, I think we're seeing uh, the effect of
5: uh, a lot more first home buyers in the market is really supporting uh, the more affordable end of the marketplace. So, for example, in uh, in Sydney. Most of the falls, or really all the falls have been seeing in dwelling values, have been across the the most expensive half of the market. And when you start looking at uh, um, the different product types, it's very much more skewed towards houses rather than apartments. Of course, apartments have a much more affordable price point, uh, which is why they're probably more appealing to first home buyers. But we are seeing, I guess, some some early signs that first home buyer demand may be starting to wind down just a little bit. Remember, uh, we saw stamp duty concessions become live in New South Wales and Victoria from July of last year, and considering we're still seeing values gradually rising around those more affordable price points uh, that first home buyers tend to target, that those those stamp duty concessions have already really lost their uh, their appeal in, in many ways because we've seen values rise more than say the thirty odd thousand dollars that first home buyers are saving.
0: So to sum up then on that side of things, the worst falls, the biggest falls are among expensive houses in Sydney and Melbourne. That's exactly right. So they're amongst uh, the, the, the most expensive
5: houses uh, or expensive dwellings in Sydney and Melbourne They're much more skewed towards detached housing. Interestingly enough, these were the two segments of the marketplace that were also seeing the strongest capital gains when, uh, when the market was firing. What's going on in Hobart? Yeah, well, Hobart is still firing along. In fact, uh, we saw values rise by nearly 1% over the month in Hobart. Uh, They're up nearly 13% over the past 12 months. But we are seeing a lot more media around the fact that affordability constraints uh, and social issues coming out of such strong price growth are becoming more predominant across Hobart. Even though we've seen values rise, uh, housing values are up nearly 13% over the past 12 months, we've seen rents rise at nearly the same amount. So, uh, uh, from an affordability perspective, uh, uh, the, the market's getting hit from, from both sides, really. So, uh, if you can't afford to buy a house, you typically rent. But we're seeing rents rising rapidly across Hobart as well.
0: And was Hobart the best performing market
5: in May? By, by quite some margin. So, Hobart was up point eight of a percent over the month. Uh, you know, the, the nearest uh, um, uh, other capital city was up half a percent. And that was Adelaide. And when you look at the trends, you know, Hobart's the only market with seeing double-digit annual growth. Uh, every other capital city, the other best performer uh, would be Canberra, which where we've seen values rise by 2.3%. So there is a really big gap between
0: uh, um, uh, the capital cities, between Hobart and the other capitals. Now, as you say, there's been a lot of talk about Hobart becoming unaffordable, which is surprisingly amazing even. Well,
5: Hobart's generally been considered the most affordable capital city to be buying into, or at least the, the least expensive. Uh, and it's going to be very soon, if not the next couple of months, where we probably see Hobart taking over or, um, or falling behind, say Adelaide or even Darwin, uh, as those two cities start to see their median prices become a little bit more affordable than Hobart's, because we're not seeing much growth in either of those cities. In fact, Darwin values are still slipping a little bit lower. And uh, there's hardly any difference between those three capital cities at the moment in terms of the median
2: prices.
0: And happy birthday to the Queen of Australian Pop, Kylie Minogue, who turned 50 on Monday. What a career. Still pumping out number one dance hits. But here's one from the old days. Can't get you out of my head, and neither will you, after this. That's it for Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week.